for the last um, maybe month or so, we've been going through a series of um, really focusing on women in the Bible, um, focusing on um, their role in the church. And unfortunately, because I'm one of the last people to do this subject, I've got the, uh, the hard job of trying to think about <laughs> what I can do, all the good ones have been taken. So, um, but I have got something to say this morning. I've got something to say about two extraordinary marriages, two extraordinary couples, but ordinary people. Uh, a tale of two couples. But before I um, continue with the sermon, I wanted to ask, generally speaking, um, what do you think, for those who are married, but well, it doesn't always apply to marriage, friendships, whatever, what makes a good marriage? And you can see a pot of 12 on it. So, uh, family friendly. <laughs> what makes a good a good marriage? Always do what your wife tells you. Always do what your wife tells you. That's probably a good thing, Bill. Yeah. Happy wife, happy life. Happy wife, happy life. Yeah, those are the, the modern day slogans we hear these days. Anything else? Good communication. Good communication. Yes. Trust. Trust. Understanding. And understanding, which is actually a lot harder than it sounds to have true empathy which is probably my, not my greatest strength or in my marriage. <laughs> Go on, Barry. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Penny. Uh, talk out the niggles. Talk out the niggles. Don't let that resentment grow. Bill. Most important love. Most important love. Uh, Corinthians would tell in 13, and uh, the Beatles will tell you time and time again. Willing to take chances. Oh, risks. Oh, I like that. We might be going there a little bit in a minute. Risks. Thanks, uh, Joe. I didn't pay him for that, by the way. Patience. Patience. That's right. Patience. (laughs) So what I'll tell you about two couples today. Um, So I will do some work. But is this recording, by the way? Yep. And also, uh, hello to those guys online. Um, I will do some work, but you will also do some work as well today, so don't get too comfortable in the heat and fall asleep, please. <laughs> this is a couple here. Um, they have been married, guess for how long? Nope. No. Nope. 81 years. They are Britain's champions at the moment when it comes to the longevity of a marriage. And uh, when they first got married, when they were very, very, very young, as you can see there, they were in their late teens. Um, and nobody thought it was ever going to last. And this year, uh, last year it was brought in the paper that um, they, Ron and Joyce Bond, both reached the ages of 102 and 100 years of age. And their secret to a long-lasting marriage after 81 years was... A little bit of give and take. <laughs> which made me chuckle. Which kind of, a, in some levels, is quite deep. So, let me introduce you to our lovely couples in true Silla Black style. Just like when they're back from their bad blind dates. No, um, seriously. I want to tell you about two couples. One of the two couples, the husband seems quite dominant. And the wife seems the lesser dominant. But the other couple, the woman seems more dominant and the man seems less dominant. 
or shall we say at this stage, it seems so, if indeed that really matters. One couple, the wife's name is not even named. In the other couple, it is quite frequently. So who are our lovely couples this morning? We have Mr. and Mrs. Peter. Who? Who is Mrs. Peter, I hear you ask. And then we have the well-known, infamous Priscilla and Aquila. So why did they choose this? Why did I choose these couples? There are lots and lots of New Testament passages dealing with the proper relationship between wife and husband. The words of Jesus and of Paul and of Peter are quite explicit in some areas about the roles and responsibilities of husband and wife. But there are only a few stories that give us any information about married couples in the New Testament who are related to the mission of Christ and to the forming and expanding of the church in the first century. And let's be honest, looking at instructional scriptures can be a bit boring, for me at least. I like to get to understand what is human, what is real about the Bible. Jesus inspires me, but those who follow Jesus can inspire me more, because they are human. Plus, I knew there was absolutely no chance that anybody was going to talk about Mrs. Peter. (laughs) (laughs) So our first couple, Mr. and Mrs. Peter, and we're going to fly through a few short scriptures here to kind of build a picture of Mrs. Peter. You can get whatever you want in your mind, Doris or whatever. So in Mark 1.21, so this is um, a part where... um, we uh, see Jesus is not long having called his disciples and he, um, he goes out and he heals um, somebody uh, on the Sabbath day and then they retire back to Simon Peter's house. In Luke 4.38, uh, we see here that again Simon Jesus is in Simon's house uh, as Mrs. Simon's mother is ill. The mother-in-law is ill. So he instantly healed her and she began straight away to wait on them. Now, this is the point in the sermon where I would be very stupid not to make a very valid and honorary point about my amazing (laughs) mother-in-law. For it has been said I know she's watching on camera. That she is the most highly regarded, spiritual, beautiful mother-in-law anyone could ever ask for. <laughs> if I, I, could, I could go on all day about how amazing my mother-in-law would be, but it might bore you. Oh, oh but um, it's, uh, we've got a sermon to talk about. <laughs> so as you can see here, we're building a picture of the uh, wife of Peter. Um, So how do we know she actually exists? Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, there's a reference where Paul writes, do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and brothers and of the Lord and of Cephas being Peter? So it's very likely that Mr. and Mrs. Peter journeyed together on parts of the missionary journey. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. 
Another reference is in John 1.44, where we read that Mr. and Mrs. Peter live in Bathsheba, which is northwest of Galilee. And there they move to Capernaum to where his wife's mother is. Some scholars believe that actually Peter's parents die, so they then end up in Capernaum. Because initially they were in Galilee, was because he called the disciples there, including Peter, which is where they originally lived. So they, they travelled from mother to mother house. But can you imagine in 116 verse 18, let's read it. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, said Jesus, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Quite often I've read the scripture, but never really thought about the impact on every part of his life. Mainly his wife. But have you ever wondered what might have happened in that conversation in coming back from the Sea of Galilee and speaking to his wife? I can just imagine that conversation. What on earth are you thinking about? You just met this guy, Jesus, and now you're going away? And Peter pleading with her, and then maybe asking him, do you mind just washing some clothes before I go? <laughs> He's in such a hurry to catch up with Jesus. Imagine what position that would have put Mrs. Peter in. In Acts 12, we read that um, Peter is later put in prison and then delivered by an angel. We see Peter uh, later on in Acts, not for another seven years until the Jerusalem Council in AD 48. It is thought that during these years, the seven years, that Peter visited places as far as Antioch, maybe as going even as far as Corinth, which from where he originally was in, in um, Capernaum was a, a long way away. First in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, it's recorded several parties uh, are causing divisions. So there's a division for Cephas, there's a division of Apollo, there's different divisions you remember him talking about. One of those divisions was about Peter. So Peter would have been there, way away from where he lived and where he came from initially. After the Jerusalem Council, it's believed that Peter and his wife visited Antioch and Corinth again, and perhaps even several cities in the northern Asia Minor area, in Galatia, a province that Paul had never visited to spread the word. It is believed that Peter and his wife finally arrived in Rome about AD 57. Some writers have estimated that those two walked more than 3,000 miles on their journey, visiting different believers in Christ. Now, two weeks ago, um, we went on a nice romantic weekend, Becky and I, and um, the next day on the Sunday, we, uh, we thought, well, let's have a nice breakfast, and then we can go out to this nice, what was it, a reservoir? It's the second or third largest reservoir in the UK, uh, called Gratham Water in Cambridgeshire. Lovely place, lovely place, but down and everything. Fantastic. So we set off on this walk, got our ice cream, which was off, but never mind, that's another story. Uh, tried to complain, get money back, but we wasn't having it. Um, and we set off on this walk, and a part of this walk, we got a map, we got this map we purchased, or got for free, whatever, and one of the stops on this walk was this restaurant, cafe area, which overlooked the whole of the reservoir, which is lovely. So we stopped there for an 
you know, a half an hour to an hour after walking for an hour and resting our feet, having a nice cool drink and stuff. And I've got this great idea, but I don't want to go back. It feels like a bit defeatist, you know, walking back for an hour the same way we came. It's a bit boring. Why don't we just continue the rest of the way around? So I asked this young bloke who worked at the, the cafe, excuse me, sir, we want to go that way. Is that possible? Uh, yeah, of course it's possible. It's a little bit longer, but, you know, um, it should be fine. Anyway, nine miles later, <laughs> nine miles later, which we thought was going to be an extra maybe an hour and a half, turned out more to be like two and a half to three and a half hour walk extra. But that was good for the soul. We shared a lot of silence, not because we argued. <laughs> we said a lot of silence. We shared about our children. We shared about just things going on in our lives, work, whatever. I think it's really good to share that walk, even though it was a lot longer than we thought it was going to be. Okay. We also learn that during the time of Nero, the Roman Empire, a plague swept through Rome, claiming 30,000 victims. So it was a bad situation. Then a hurricane devastated a whole area of Campania. So in Nero's you know, mind, somebody had to pay for this. The gods had been upset. So what did he do to appease the gods? He needed a scapegoat. Who was that scapegoat? The Christians. So he ordered a decree to put to death every single Christian in that area. And he had literally hundreds of Christians put to death. A century later, one of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, writes about the final days of Peter and his wife. Clement states that the first Christian to be arrested was Peter's wife. She must have been prominent enough to be singled out, perhaps even as a leader in the church. Why would an early church father talk about her? And this wasn't long after they died. Peter, when he saw his wife, apparently it was recorded, that he called her by name when she was being put to death, encouraging her with the words, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. Next in line, of course, we know is Peter, who was brought forward to be crucified in AD 66. I think Peter must have been, Mrs. Peter must have been a remarkable woman. For Jesus came back again and again to his house and she served. She walked a lot with him. She shared the mission with him. And ultimately she paid the price of her faith. I would say that is an extraordinary marriage. At this point in time, I'm going to ask my wife, beautiful wife, to read 18, to Acts 18 for us, 1 to 27. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, 
Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Messiah, the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, Acacia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on so the anybody? <laughs> Sosthenes, thank you, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Yeah. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Senkri. Some very interesting names. Sorry. <laughs> Read them as you will. Because of a vow he had taken, they arrived at Ephesus and where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That's fine. Thank you. So it's good to get a context of what's going on here, where, where Paul's at. So it was in Corinth. So what do we know? This is your turn to... Our, our, to do some work now, actually. So what do we know here? Well, I have to get your Bibles out and look at the scriptures as well. What do we know here of Priscilla and Aquila? What do we initially know from the scriptures? Yes, they came from Italy. They were so from Rome. And why were they in Corinth? So they were refugees. They were actually forcibly evacuated, or shall we say, removed from their homes by the Edict of Claudius. Anything else we know about them as a couple? They were tent makers, yes. So they had their own business. And it makes it clear here that it's not just his business. It's her business as well. It's Priscilla and Aquila. They practice the same, same trade. You know, when you read this at first glance, it doesn't really seem obvious, but 
to set up a business in those days would have been expensive, would have taken a lot of time to put up clientele, and you would have had to pay the authorities as well to all sorts of taxes to set up the business. So it was a lot of work to set up a business of that regard. And how did they, how did they help Paul? Paul, Paul, Paul lived with them. Absolutely. Anything else? They accompanied him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Paul lived with him for 18 months in Corinth. For 18 months they had a single man in, in their house and also working for them in their business. And at that time he's writing letters. Do you have any idea how much it might have cost Paul to write a letter? Any idea? They reckon that it probably cost around about $2,000, £2,000 to write a letter, to pay for someone to copy it as well, to actually get the parchment, to the time and effort it would have taken to, to do all that would have cost him £2,000. So he needed support to write his letters, to advance the gospel, to, to, to write to various churches. It took time, money and effort. Priscilla and Aquila helped him in the effort helped him, you know, do what he needed to do for the ministry. You know, it says, as I travel, Paul did not carry the supplies necessary to conduct a significant business as a tent maker. It is true today, and even truer, that one did not enter a town and immediately open up a profitable business. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, it took considerable time to establish necessary relationships in order to gain permissions to conduct a business. Paul was able on occasion to enter into this business, but only in situations such as Corinth. He didn't take around with him the things he needed to be a tent maker. As in when he needed money, he, he could do it. But actually it was Aquila and Priscilla who actually helped him a lot. So, who did they then meet preaching and how did they help them? Apollos. And how did they help Apollos? Explain the word more. Explain the word of the Lord more adequately. And what what stands out about this, this part of the story? They are generally good guys. Who does it mention first in this? Priscilla. Priscilla. Does it say Aquila and Priscilla? Luke records here, who first? The woman. The woman. You know, to list a woman first in the biblical text would have been highly, highly unusual. Additionally, out of the four times, four out of the six times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the scripture, Priscilla's name is mentioned first. 
In ancient writings, the order in which names were written were very significant. So not only was Priscilla a co-laborer with her husband, but the order of their names in the text could indicate that she was more distinguished among the two and deserving of high praise. Here we have a biblical example of a woman instructing a man on the accuracy of the scriptures, on what is true and not true. Do you only know the baptism of John? You need to know the baptism of Jesus. So Priscilla and Quilla modelled co-ministry and mutuality in their marriage. Scripture shows them instructing, in, them instructing others in ways of God and it appears to specifically honour Priscilla by naming him first. Let's read Romans 6, 35. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Jesus Christ. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Now, a few, few years later here, we see Paul warmly greeting his friends in a letter who are now leading a house church in Rome. And again, we see Priscilla is mentioned first. So this co-laboring couple made a tremendous difference in advancing the gospel. Paul addresses them twice more in his letters. It's especially significant that he names them in the letter to the Romans. And not only have they got respect from Paul, they've got the respect from every single Gentile. So you see the Gentiles church here really respecting this woman being singled out, Priscilla, who they knew was responsible for advancing the gospel. So why is this significant? Why is this significant to, in terms of the woman's role? Why is this significant to us? The history of the gospel in the church, really, it's mostly the men that are mentioned as leading it and going out and being at the forefront. So this is, it definitely stands out. Stands out, definitely stands out, doesn't it? Anything else? I think if you try and imagine how they would have also laid out, maybe Paul would have been a lodger who they would have been hospitable to. So in, in the course of her like normal things she would have done, like being hospitable, bed him, they would have discussed Jesus, they would have normal things of work with us, just in her normal life, in their normal life. They happened to be sexual and everything because they got to know about Jesus and got to spread it, got to invite people to their fire. It was seemingly like ordinary things, but with extraordinary impact. Employ someone, invite someone to your home, and that just grows in church. Yeah. I see a lot of work going on here. Um, God is working. Yeah. Uh, the ten makers together, Paul and the uh, um, this, it's mentioning co-workers up there. And it's like a lot of team co-workers. Yes, that's significant. Co-workers. 
He doesn't say that one is above the other. They're, they're equal in Paul's eyes. They're equal. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the beginning of, of that passage in Acts that we read, um, it's a quote that's mentioned first when Paul first meets them, and it's quite interesting in what you're saying that later on it's Priscilla that's so mentioned before her husband when they're, when they're spoken about, and then obviously in this bit in Romans where it's uh, like somebody else about co workers, you know, it suggests that more that Paul got to know them as a couple and they got to know him and they worked together, you know, how um, yeah, how, how yeah. her presence or her impact was acknowledged. Yeah. Paul had absolutely no problem with godly women like Priscilla being ministers and leaders to men in church. Otherwise you would not have honoured it. And obviously Luke, you know, we don't want to aspire to Luke to put her name first, but that's the Holy Spirit right there. There was something prominent, something unique about this woman, what had been known throughout all of the Gentile churches. So you, could, you could argue that she was more famous than the husband, because she went first. Well, I think it's like, she put only Luke with Paul. Paul also does the same, which kind of builds a Bigger picture, doesn't it, on what, what, what's in the minds of people there? You know, if two apostles are saying it. Another thing I noticed was this Romans, which was written last. So, yeah. at this stage, so this was written after what we saw in Acts, So they must have gone back to them after they were deported. Yes. Yeah. And as a couple, they were willing for their business and their lives to be disrupted. Had a good business. Some of the profits of that business were supported Paul in helping them write him in write letters, make, so he could uh, preach in the local synagogues, supporting him in his ministry. He was a great support to them, as we can see in writing about it. Here, and that takes two. In a marriage, they you both have to be on the same page there to be supportive of someone. You know, they both love Paul equally. They both love the ministry equally, and so much so that they're willing for their business to be so disrupted that they went on journeys with Paul. Back then, travel was not cheap. We all know how expensive travel is these days. Look at the price of cars and petrol. Now, back then, travel was inconvenient. It was dangerous. It was not cheap, and Priscilla, she's willing to go. Now, it would have been scarier for a woman to travel. But they left their business and had their lives interrupted because of the sake of the gospel. You know, we could probably talk about that a lot more, but we need to, we need to conclude before we start falling, falling asleep in the heat, I think. So, thinking about both couples, what was special about their marriages? They worked together. They worked together. 
So teamwork, definitely a thing. What about, uh, what about anything else? How is their marriage? What was their focus? Go on, Aki. I think what was mentioned earlier about Chris, the two priests together. Yeah. The big priests, you know, their lives were on stake, you know, their, their careers, their income. They didn't travel to Nepal to be, you know, on a mission in Germany to be their home. They did it together. They took the risk together and they had to do that without something else. That's right. They were not focused on themselves. Their livelihood, even though they had a successful business, it wasn't what their lives were about once they'd heard the message and became Christians. It seemed to me there's a point in their lives where the business was not the means to the end. It was an enabler for something. They shared the same interests. Yeah, they did. They did. Yeah. Joe. I see that marriage is like <coughs> a stone. When it's cast in the water, it starts from uh, from the center and it spreads out. So you have to be solid to be able to have an influence on everything else yeah. around. Ripple effects. Yeah. Ripple effects. And you actually what you said there kind of sums up why the whole of the Galatian churches heard about them as a couple. Ripple effects of it must have helped a lot of people. Now, especially in terms of accurately understanding the scriptures, they would have been good teachers. They would have known their stuff. And part of that maybe is because they, they learned from Paul. They're both willing, the men and the women, the, the, the woman and the man, they're both willing to learn from Paul. But on the other hand, Paul had no problem with the woman teaching the men. I want to make that point. It doesn't condemn it. So they weren't focused on themselves and their own well-being, their business, their livelihoods, but on a mission far greater than themselves. It was a cause that consumed their lives and their marriage for a holy purpose. Now they were obedient to the commandment to make disciples, Matthew 28. They did work well as a team. And it seems that one did not dominate over the other in their marriages whether it be Mr. and Mrs. Peter or Priscilla and Aquila. They are both free to express themselves and use their gifts for God's glory, both men and women. Not just their own. So ultimately, as couples, they walked together. Travelled. They walked together. Walking's good. If you need to have a walk with your wife for a while, or your best friend, or whatever it is, go and walk with them. See the spirit move. They prayed together. They served together. Ultimately, Mrs. Peter paid the price for her faith. But all of them were faithful to the end. There were couples that took up the cross and ultimately took up the cross because of what Jesus had done to them, done for them. And they went on to spread the message of the cross 
and to tell peoples from different cultures and faiths and creeds that Jesus had risen. That was their mission and lifestyle. It was about Jesus had risen. And I'm sure there was a little bit of give and take along the way. Amen. That's that's me done. <laughs> that took me a long time to prepare, but it seems quickly to speak about it. <laughs> let's, um, before we take communion, let's bow our heads and pray.